Today's sermon is entitled, Never Settle for Weak Sauce. Weak Sauce. Say, what is weak sauce? I have three teenagers, and I've heard them say, that's weak sauce. (laughs) No, that's not true. (laughs) They're like, Dad, don't tell us we said that. That's like from 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah? Anybody ever guilty enough to say that? Did you ever say, that's weak sauce? Okay. Wow, that is old. Ah. (laughs) Never settle for weak sauce. John chapter 13, verse 34 through 35. This is Jesus speaking, so we better pay attention. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Picture it now, will you? Hours before Jesus would be betrayed, he asks his disciples to secure a banquet hall. Now, this is not an easy task because the banquet was taking place on on Passover, and this was a very... Uh, a, a very religious community. It was Jerusalem. Jerusalem on Passover. They're looking for a banquet hall, and they find one. They find a banquet hall, and they hold, uh, they hold Passover together. We call it the Last Supper, famously painted by Leonardo DiCaprio. No. <laughs> Leonardo da Vinci, right? And so there Jesus is with his disciples in the final supper that he would ever have, and he sits down with them, and he talks with them. It's called the Upper Room Discourse, and Jesus expresses a lot. He talks about the Holy Spirit. He talks about his plan. He talks about his death that is imminent. It's coming. It's coming. And he also talks about friendship quite a bit. And he says in verse 34, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples. By this will all men know that you are my disciples. This is the way others will know that you are his disciples. How do people know if we are the disciples of Jesus? Oh, oh, this is the way people will know you are my disciples. This is the way you know that you are the disciple of Christ. Others will know that you're a disciple of Christ. How? If you have love one for another. Love. For each other is the indicator of your discipleship to Christ. Okay, so what does that look like? Let's pray. Father, over these next few moments, over these next three weeks, I pray you would give us clear indication from your word what you want us to know about friendship. I pray, Father, that this would come from your word, from the Bible. This is not just my opinion on matters of relationship and friendship. I pray that you would hide me and hide my opinions and project you and your opinions. We're not here to hear from a guy. We're here to hear from the God. And I pray that every one of us would hear from you about friendship from your scripture today. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. I know you have friends. I know you have friends. Some of you are a little defensive today. I'm going to a sermon series about friends. I have friends. I have friends. I know you have friends. My question is not whether or not you have friends. My question is whether or not you have great friends. People are plentiful. True friends are rare. They're rare. So the question is, do you have the right kind of friends? Do you have the right people in your life? A few months ago, I said something about spaghetti sauce in a sermon, and, uh, and, and I was attacked vehemently by all of my Italian or descendants of Italian friends. Some of you, you Italian people, you attacked me because I said my favorite spaghetti sauce is ragu. 
I do. I love, I love, I love ragu. Uh, and here's why I love ragu, because you can go to Albertsons and you can buy it for on sale, $1.99. <laughs> and then sometimes, whenever you're using the app, and that app is extremely confusing, and when Monopoly is in play, I'm even more confused, you take, your, you take the app and you can buy ragu for $1.50 a jar. $1.50. $1.50. This is cheap. This is very inexpensive, and it's, and, it's, and it's sauce. And it goes on the spaghetti noodles. It's a very cheap way to feed my children. And so I said, I love ragu. And, and some of you got offended with me, and you emailed me very nasty things, and you said very <laughs> cruel things about my love for ragu. But I love ragu, so, you know, deal with it. And then somebody was so, somebody was so um, offended and so aggressive that they actually sent me in the mail <laughs> their favorite spaghetti sauce, Rayos. Anybody? You, oh, okay. All right. Okay. Somebody sent me Rayos. Who was it? Do you know? Somebody did. Somebody, somebody sent me Rayos in the mail. And I'm like, you know, okay, passive aggressive. You understand? And a little rude. But that's fine. Fine. It's free sauce. I saved money. And I'm going to eat it. So I did. I made some spaghetti for my family. I cooked up the noodles. I did. I made meatballs. When I say meatballs, I warmed up the ones that are in the freezer at Albertsons. <laughs> Don't be insulting, all right? <laughs> the Italians are all over here like, I can't believe you said it. All right. <laughs> so, Reos. So I'm like, all right. So I cooked the meatballs, and I opened it up, and I poured it in. We put it on the spaghetti noodles. I took a bite, and oh, my goodness. No, I'm serious. I said, oh, oh, no, no. Ragu is disgusting. It's disgusting. You ever taste it? It's like ketchup. It's like ketchup with a few tomatoes. It's, I will never touch the stuff again. So I'm like, that's it. I'm done. I'm a Rayos person at this point. I'm converted, right? I love Jesus and I love Rayos. And now I go to Albertsons and I buy Rayos, but I go there the very first time. And when I arrive, Rayos costs, there's, right beside my $1.99 ragu, Rayos is there, $6.99 on sale. $7.99 regularly. I'm like, eight bucks. Then I had to decide how much I love it, right? I don't love it that much. And then I thought, but I do. I can't go back. I can't go back. So I made a compromise with myself. Um, I bought both. I eat Rayos. The rest of the family gets ragu. So now it works out perfect for everybody because I will not settle for a weak sauce. Is it true? Do you like ragu, right? She likes ragu. She'll never taste the other stuff. She's a loyal person to ragu. You want the best. You want the best. You want the best. And you don't have to settle for the rest as it relates to friends. This is what I want you to grasp. Just because you've been hurt by others in the past, it doesn't mean that you've always been around the right type of people. Just because you've been hurt by those who have called you friend, just because you've gone through the traps of betrayal, just because you've been offended and maligned, does not mean true friends are not out there. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, especially this is true among the family of God. You can have had a friend who was a disciple of Jesus, who betrayed you, who turned their back on you, who harmed you, who said they would never leave you, but that they left you. And so friendship can be a very, very difficult time for us to truly grasp, but I propose to you, perhaps it's not friendship that has a problem, perhaps it's the friends that you are with. I want you to try the best. Do you have friends like this, is the question for my first sermon today. Friends like what, pastor? 
Don't settle for weak sauce. Friends like this, number one, we're friends where, where masks are not required. <laughs> Hallelujah, amen, right? Now, some of you are getting really nervous. Masks. Right? So if I don't like masks, right, I'm Republican, and if I do like masks, I'm Democrat. How did masks become about politics? Have you noticed this? Right? I'm not talking about physical masks where you're talking about masks that people wear, right? So that's not what I'm talking about, you understand? I'm not talking about, masks have been, masks as a whole, our world has been obsessed with them. And this happened long before COVID ever touched our land. People love to walk around with masks on. They don't want to show who they really are. They don't want to express who they really are. They don't want to, they don't want to demonstrate what they really think. They hide themselves and they present to the world around them somebody that's not actually true. You are somebody different inside, but you don't want to show that on the outside. Here's the cool thing about the right kind of friend is you can demask around them. Isn't that true though, right now, today? We're not sure where people are on the whole issue. So like when you're with people, you're like, hey, how you doing? You're talking, you're like, are you, do you wanna, do you, are you gonna, are we, are we gonna, how do you, how do you know, what am I supposed to, how are you, and, but then when you're with like your real friends, you're able to say, oh man, Whew. man, this feels good. Don't, so don't make this about COVID. This is not about COVID. Now listen to me, listen. Do you have the type of friends that you can just let it all show? Totally demasked. But we live in a society where we train people to mask up long before COVID. Better mask up. You don't want people to see what you're really thinking. Better mask up. You don't want them to know who you really are. We do it to our children. Don't tell them what you think. Don't tell them what you're feeling. So there's a little girl in a room She's sitting there at the mall, and inside the store walks a big, fat man with a red T-shirt, red pants, and a big white beard. What is she thinking? She's thinking, that's got to be him. But we've trained her to say nothing. Don't point at him. Don't ask. Shh, shh, shh. There's a little boy, he's seven years old. He's sitting in church. All of a sudden, down the pew, there's an old woman who lets out a very large sound. And that little boy hears it and everybody else does. And we tell him, don't giggle, don't say anything. Now, why do we do this with our children? Here's why we do it. Because we like to, to live in a polite society. We prefer decorum over living in Neverland with Peter Pan and the Lost Boys. So we teach them maturity. And decorum is a good thing, but what that little boy needs is to be able to eventually go to a group of friends and say, I gotta tell you what happened in church. That's what he needs. And what that little girl needs is to go to school with a bunch of other second graders and say, I can't tell you who I saw at the mall. It was Santa. That's what they need. They need friends to where, it's not that we don't have decorum, it's that there needs to be a place where children, where teenagers, where men, where women can take off their masks and say, hey, this is what I'm dealing with. Hey, this is what I'm thinking about. This is the problem in my life right now. See, I'm asking if you have, right now, if you have these kind of friends where masks are not 
required. Romans chapter 12, verses nine and 10, Paul was talking to the, to the Romans about this. The Christians in Rome were definitely born again. They definitely were followers of Christ. They were disciples. And he says to them, let love be without hypocrisy. It was very difficult for the Christians in Rome to trust other Christians. Why? Because their church was actually suffering persecution. Imagine if it was illegal to come to church, and if you came to church, you're going to get arrested and thrown in prison for coming to church, and maybe your business would be taken away. Maybe your family would be taken away. Maybe the church would shut down. Maybe the pastor would go to jail. Ooh, that's not scary, amen, right? You know what that? Imagine that's the case. And there we are, we're meeting for church, and then we're told, love each other openly. You're like, I can't. I don't know if they're, if they're trustworthy. You see, this is one of the problems we have when it comes to friendships. We have a problem because we're not sure if people are trustworthy, so we, we mask up. And so Paul says to the Romans, no, 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 let your friendships and your love be without hypocrisy. Say, why do you say hypocrisy and mask up? Because the word hypocrisy literally means to mask up. Say, really? Yeah, yeah. In fact, the, the word hypocrisy is not an English word. You can search it for yourself if you want to. The word hypocrisy is actually a Greek word. And this is not a translation of the Greek word. It was a transliteration of the Greek word. The word hypocrisy literally means to mask up. It was the word for actor. Do you remember in the Greek society, they had plays, stage plays like this, where people would come up and they would, they, would, uh, they would express themselves and they would do a play in front of people. And the way they did it in front of these large ancient amphitheaters that we see in the ruins of, of the Greek and the Roman world today, is they would do it in such front, front of such large crowds that the people's voice would project based upon how they built the amphitheater, but the people in the back could not see the expression of the actors' faces. And so what the actors would do is they would wear masks with the main uh, uh, visual image of what the, the character was. So if it was a happy character, they would have a happy face. If it was a sad character, it would have a sad face. If it was an angry or mean character, the villain would have an angry or mean face. And so the actors would come out and they would come out with these masks on and they were referred to as the hypocrites. In fact, the word hypocrite in Greek is a compound word, meaning to express from underneath. Express from underneath what? Express a different character than you actually are through a mask. Now, that's hard for us to know because we just know the word hypocrisy. Back then, every Roman would have understood exactly what he's saying. He's saying, when you love somebody, don't do it with a mask on. Don't do it like that. Let your love be without a mask. Who do you have, who do you have that you can say I'm kindly affectionate with one, this other person in brotherly love, like we're a family, like we're a family. Who do you have like that? Who do you have like that? I want you to think of them. Who is that man in your life? Who is that woman in your life? Who are those people like that in your life? Number one, as we look to better friends, Friends like this, they're friends where masks are not required. Number two, number two, they are friends where face-to-face -face confrontation takes place. Face-to-face -face confrontation. 
There are two kinds of people. The first kind of person loves confrontation. This is what they live for. These are the people that spend a lot of time on social media. You know what I mean? They're like, does anybody here have a differing opinion from mine? I love confrontation. They're the people that run from confrontation. These are the people that really are, have a difficult time maintaining and retaining deep friendships because they're afraid of any type of confrontation. You should not be in love with confrontation, nor you should be afraid of confrontation, but you should allow confrontation to enter into the relationships, especially those that are most close to you. Now, as it relates to confrontation, what does the Bible say? Good question. Proverbs chapter 27, verse six. Proverbs 27, verse six says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. You know, authenticity is not easy. It's a high risk, high reward scenario. Authenticity. If I'm gonna pull down my mask, there is a great risk that you're gonna hate me, but there's also a possibility of great reward. You're gonna actually know me, and maybe you'll know me and like me. So what the problem is, is when we take off our mask, there's the possibility that the people around us are gonna start seeing the imperfections in our skin. The closer they get to see the warts, you know what I mean? And so we know our problems, and so we mask up, and we don't let anybody in. And that's when the Bible comes in and blows away our worldview, and it says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. These things are not bad. When you have some people in your life who can honestly evaluate the problems in your life and care about you enough to say, hey, don't you see that what you've got going on there is dangerous for you? And confront you where they are, this is love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Can anybody think of a friend in the Bible who kissed another friend, but it wasn't a friend who kissed a friend? Who was that? Judas. We all have Judases in our lives. We'll all go through betrayal. People that pretend they're your friend and they come around you, hey, how you doing, man? It's so good. This guy's the best in the world. I can't believe what he really is like. We've all experienced that. You don't want enemies kissing you. What you want are friends confronting you. So do you have people like that in our lives, in your life? That's not so easy, it's easy to talk about, it's not so easy to live, right? Because when you really love somebody, they'll come to you and they'll say, hey, I gotta tell you, if you're not careful, you're gonna go the wrong direction here, and immediately we put up walls. Oh, you're one of those people. I see what you're gonna do. You're gonna attack me again, aren't you? I have so many stories written down here, I wasn't sure which one to share to illustrate this point. So many times people have confronted me. I don't like when people confront me. When people confront me and they say, hey, pastor, we got a problem, or hey, Josh, I want to talk with you about something, I, I look and I'll smile, <laughs> mask up. You don't know what I'm thinking. My wife is from the South. Have you ever heard a Southern woman say, bless their heart? <laughs> you know what that means, right? <laughs> I'm not going to say it out loud. It's not polite. Bless your heart. If a southern woman ever says, bless your heart, you, you, you're, she doesn't like you. <laughs> I, had a, I had a woman in our church years ago who came to me, one of the most godly women I've ever known. Her name was Marie. And Marie 
a member of our church for years. She still comes on our Wednesday night Bible study. She'll probably hear this sermon. She came to me one time and she said, Pastor, she's a, several, uh, a bit older than me. I considered it an older sister in the Lord. She said to me, I had three children at the time, two-year-old, five-year-old, and like a, like a nine-year-old, something like that. I forget exactly their age at that time. They came to me, eight-year-old, something like that. She came to me, she said, Pastor, I'd love to talk with you about something. I said, sure. We went out for coffee, we sat there for a moment, and she said to me, she said, Pastor, what I have to say to you, I'm a little nervous saying. I'm like, Marie, you can say anything. Suddenly the walls go up and the mask comes on. You know what I mean? Am I the only one? I'm humble enough to hear anything because I'm so humble, I talk about how humble I am. <laughs> she said, Pastor, it's about parenting, and I feel like God has led me to share a few thoughts on how you parent your children. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> how many parents in the room? Don't you love it when other people tell you how to parent? Don't you love that? Also, don't you love it when that's coming from somebody who's never had a child? Marie's never had a child. So now I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay. Let's see how this goes. And my goal in those moments, I'm gonna tell you what I'm really thinking, here comes the mask on. My goal in those moments when that kind of thing happens, I sit there and I think to myself, make it through 15 minutes without going crazy. Just make it through 15 minutes, say nothing, because I'm a, I gotta be nice. I'm a pastor, I get paid to be nice. <laughs> Can't yell at this woman, throw coffee at her and leave. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, oh, yes, oh, well, that's nice. I'm practicing all of what I have to say. Then she began to share a few truths that she saw because she walked close to God, because she studied the scripture deeply, because she knew me as a friend, and she knew my wife as a friend. And she began to say things to me that were so insightful, so biblical, so helpful. I sat there and God reproved my heart as she confronted me on a few parenting issues. I thank God for her friendship. Now hear me, hear me. Do you have people like that in your life? or have you become adept at building walls toward anybody who makes you feel uncomfortable about anything? This is what happens to very, very, very successful people often. They surround themselves with people who tell them only what they wanna hear. And the higher you arrive in life, the more power you have to push away anybody who's a real friend and surround yourself with a bunch of people that you pay to tell you whatever you want to. Mm. Number one, do you have friends like this? Friends where masks are not required. Number two, where face-to-face -face confrontation happens. Number three, where they show up when the chips are down. See, I want you to really question this. Not for the person beside you or your teenager. This will be good for my teenager. I want you to question for yourself. I want you to ask yourself, do I have friends like this? Do I have someone in my life who will confront me when I'm going off course, speak honestly in my life when I'm hurting myself or hurting others? They show up when the chips are down. They show up when the chips are down. Jesus Christ had such friends. At least he was developing them. 
It doesn't mean at times they didn't run away, but they always returned. In fact, it was just a few hours before Jesus would be betrayed by one of his own friends. He was gonna be betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was gonna be turned over to the Romans and crucified. But even in this moment, Jesus, hours before, was not confused about who he was. He wasn't confused about what happened next. In fact, it was very clear in his mind. He knew exactly what he had came to earth to do, to die upon the cross for the sins of mankind. He knew everyone who was alive, everyone who had lived, and he knew everyone who would live, including you and me, because Jesus was more than a man. He is the very Son of God. And he came to earth with a very specific mission. Here was the mission, to die for the sins of mankind, lest the sins of mankind be credited to the, the, the account of mankind and mankind would have to die and go to hell for themselves. So Jesus came knowing full well what he was doing. He must be the sacrifice for sin. He must die for the sins of the entire world. But the problem was he was only a few hours away from that tragedy, from the difficulty of his existence, from eternity past to eternity future. This was the crucible moment and he wasn't confused about what was going to happen. But man, was he burdened. He says in John chapter 13, verses 1 and following, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come. See, he knew. He knew his hour was come, that he should depart from this world unto the Father, having loved his own. He loved his brethren, his disciples, who were in the world. He loved them to the very end. He knew what was gonna happen, yet he was still troubled deeply in his soul. So what happens to Jesus who is troubled? What happens to Jesus as he's facing this tragic moment in his life? He gathers to himself his friends. Notice what he does in the upper room. And as they leave the upper room, you notice what they do. They walk across the city, down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and there they go to a little garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Bible tells us in Matthew what takes place next. In Matthew chapter 26, it says, and Jesus came with the place which is called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, hey guys, sit here while I go and pray over there. He had his friends right within walking distance. And then he had a closer circle of friends, his best friends. And, and, he, and he said, he took Peter and the two sons of Je Zebedee, James and John, Peter, James and John, and he began to be sorrowful, deeply distressed. As he walked away from the rest, he began to, you could physically see him get sorrowful. Perhaps tears were coming to his eyes. It was obvious on the face of Jesus that he was distressed. You say, what was he distressed about? He was about to die upon the cross. He knew the details of what was about to take place. And he was so troubled and discouraged. What does he do? Look at the next verse. The Bible tells us in verse 38. On the screen it should say, and it says, and he said unto them, my soul he tells the disciples, his own brother, his own friends, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. Even to death. Listen, listen, my brothers, my, my men. Jesus Christ, strong man, yes or no? 
the ability to suffer 39 lashes with a cat of nine tails and then carry his own cross down the city and outside of the city walls. This is a man's man. To suffer the nails through his hands, through his feet, and to be able to survive as long as he did. You want to talk about male strength. But that doesn't even touch the spiritual strength of this man. As he watched the ones who beat him, about to be cursed by the God of heaven, he calls out to his father, Father, forgive him! He doesn't know what he's doing! That's strength. And this strong man, a descendant of Adam, he looks at his friends and says, let me tell you what I'm feeling. Let me tell you what I'm feeling, guys. I'm feeling worried, I'm feeling anxiety, I'm feeling stress, I'm feeling really stressed out, I'm so concerned about what's coming, but some of you are more manly than that. Mask up, nobody needs to feel or know what I'm feeling. And he expresses so clearly, exceedingly sorrowful, even to death, stay here and pray, watch with me and pray. And he goes a little further, just a little farther, and he falls down on his face and he cries out to God saying, oh my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And I want this question to ring in your mind. Where does Jesus go? To whom does he turn in his moment of tragedy? The answer is, he turns to the father. He turns to God, which is what we should do. But notice, as he turns to God, he has surrounded himself with his friends. Where will you turn in your moment of tragedy? You say, well, I'll just turn to Jesus. That's nice, but what Jesus did was he turned to God and he surrounded himself with his friends. Are you doing the latter? Christians, have be- we, we have become so super spiritual that we're not practical in our daily lives. Well, if I have troubles, I just take them to Jesus. Great, take them to Jesus and bring your friends around and tell them how you feel. Right. Express yourself to them. Show them where you are and what's going on in your heart and with your mind. You say, I don't have friends like that. Then get friends like that. Amen. Get friends like this. He surrounded himself with his friends, his friends. By the way, that very night, you say, how do you know they were his friends? Because that very night, remember back in the, back in the room where they were eating? In the upper room, Jesus was sitting with them. He teaches them a lot of things and he talked about friendship. In fact, he says in John chapter 15 and verse five, this is part is so cool. He says, no longer do I call you servants for a servant doesn't know everything that the master is doing. Instead of calling you servants, I now call you Friends. Jesus was at a place where he wanted friends. So, I mean, it's pretty obvious, right? If Jesus needed friends, you're, you're good without them? They're like, well, it's just not my personality. Not your personality? I'm not saying you don't have people in your life. People are plentiful. I'm asking you, do you have these kind of friends? I can teach you how from the Bible. It begins by understanding something else Jesus said to them while he was in that upper room. He said in John chapter 13, 
while he was in that upper room, he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. The same way I've loved you, I want you to love one another. Jesus' call was not just to be his friend. Jesus' call was for them to be pals with each other. Because he knew he was about to die and spend, he's about to go to heaven. They needed each other. You need each other. Don't you see? From the pulpit, we've done this for years, thousands of years, and we need to, and we need to call sinners to Jesus and say Jesus is a friend of sinners. Come to Jesus Christ, you do. And as you come to Jesus Christ, it's not enough. It's enough to save your soul, but it's not gonna finish helping your life unless the Jesus that you come to also surrounds you with other followers of Jesus. Community. It is an essential element of the Christian faith and you're not truly a disciple without it. This should be, all men will know you're my disciples, if you love one another. There it is. If you love one another. So pastor, what does this mean for me practically? Here it is. It's very simple. I just don't want you to settle for weak sauce. Like you only have so many years in life and you only have so many places you can connect with people. You only have so many connectors in your experience of friends. Maybe it's time to evaluate who you're connected to. Maybe there are some that need to be taken off your Lego and maybe there's some new ones that need to be put on. Asking yourself, do I have friends where masks are not required, where face-to-face confrontation is taking place and they show up when the chips are down. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word and the truths of it. My prayer, my prayer is that you would help us to see that you are the greatest friend we could ever have and that you bring us into a community of friends. Help us to seek you and to seek others. I pray for two types of people, those who only need you in this moment, they've never been born again, that today they would repent and receive you as their savior, their master, their Lord, their friend. And I pray for the individual in this room who already has been saved, but they need to surround themselves with other disciples. I pray that these decisions would be made deep in the souls and the hearts of every man, woman, and teenager here that we would genuinely obey. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.